Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Media and Communications, part of the New Books Network of podcasts featuring discussions with scholars on current subjects in communication research, media studies, and technology studies. I'm your host, John Baltz, a digital media and advertising professional. Our website is newbooksincommunications.com, where you can subscribe and find a short summary of the book discussed on today's show. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to past conversations with other authors. You can also subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. If you like us, please consider leaving a review. If you don't like us, let us know how we can be better. Your feedback helps us prepare the best, most engaging conversations possible. Today's guest is Ben Castleman, an education policy professor at the University of Virginia and the author of The 160-Character Solution, How Text Messaging and Other Behavioral Strategies Can Improve Education published in 2015 by Johns Hopkins University Press. It's common to hear marketers say we live in a mobile-centric world. It's less common to hear it from social scientists. Ben Castleman does not use the phrase mobile-centric, but he recognizes the device's centrality in our lives, especially the lives of young people, Uh, and he's researched how the device can make a difference in educational settings. The 160-character solution might sound like a book all about mobile phones and text messages, but it's broader than that. It is a guide to some of the best research on insights from behavioral science fields like behavioral economics and social psychology, and how these can be applied to help students complete assignments, perform to their full potential on tests, and choose schools and colleges where they are well positioned for success. As more and more communicators try to meet people where they are with the information and content they need, The 160-character solution is a reminder that texts are one of the smart ways schools can help students succeed and that texting is one small slice of the overall digital experience. Our conversation lasts about an hour. I hope you enjoy it. My guest today is Ben Castleman, an assistant professor of education and public policy at the University of Virginia. His research applies insights from behavioral economics and social psychology to improve college access and success for low-income and non-traditional students. He's been active in policy discussions with organizations at a variety of government levels, including the White House Domestic Policy Council, the Department of Education, the College Board, the Virginia Community College System, just to name a few. Uh, And if you're curious to get a taste of his views, you can follow him on Twitter uh, at Ben Castleman, where he is an active tweeter. Ben, welcome to the Noom Books in Media and Communications podcast. Great. Thanks so much, John. Really excited for the conversation. Now, texts are one of the most powerful and pernicious channel mediums, ways to communicate. How did you first come to decide that they could be useful in solving some of the toughest educational challenges? It's a great question, and it actually goes back to the dark ages of 2008. I, at the time, was in my first or second year in graduate school and still working as a school administrator in Providence, Rhode Island. And I was working on a project uh, the summer after students high school and college trying to provide them with additional counseling support to help them successfully enroll in college. 
And we had a couple of counselors who were working over the summer to reach out to students. And even then, the counselors were finding that when they tried to call or email students, they weren't getting responses, voicemails weren't set up, emails were bouncing back. And then an enterprising counselor uh, decided he would try texting students and Facebook messaging students, and the responses were instantaneous. Students were incredibly grateful for the outreach and happy to engage. So it took us a few years after that to, to formalize texting as a way we could reach out to students in an automated, scalable, and personalized way, but, but those were the earliest insights. Uh, was there a particular challenge that you thought this is a great fit for texting. So your closest work is on something, a problem called the summer melt. Uh, maybe you could talk about that, sort of what it is. But was that, is that sort of the first problem where you thought, yeah, this would really work well with texts? Yes, no, the summer melt definitely was. So the summer melt is a phenomenon where students who have completed everything they're supposed to do in order to get to college, they've done well in high school, they've applied to and gotten accepted to college, they've applied for financial aid, they've even chosen where to go as of high school graduation, um, but failed to enroll anywhere in the year after high school as a result of financial and procedural tasks they have to complete over the summer, everything from finalizing their financial aid application to evaluating loans to filling out housing applications and attending orientation. And in the years leading up to, to our texting work in the summer, we had had counselors reach out to students and, and found pretty sizable impacts of, of counselors reaching out to provide assistance. We also found, as, as I mentioned just a moment ago, that, that counselors were investing a tremendous amount of time just getting students to connect. Again, phone calls not being answered, emails not being responded to. And it occurred to us, one, we could automate that outreach. Uh, if we collected students' cell phone numbers, uh, we could easily text them to make a connection. But, but it occurred to us we could go even a step further, where if we knew where students were planning to go to college and we knew um, from college websites what tasks students had to get done in order to successfully matriculate, we could stitch together those two sources of information and push out to students at scale. I mean, our first project doing texting was thousands of students. Um, push out to students really personalized information and reminders about tasks they had to complete at their intended college or university. And, and we did that. cost only a few dollars per student to set this up. Um, but we found sizable increases in, in the share of students that successfully enrolled in college. That has, in turn, spawned applying similar strategies at, at lots of other margins and with different populations. I, I want to dig in a little bit on the summer research. So one, when you first started doing this, did students find it creepy in any way? Uh, so I, I vividly remember the first night of the first texting campaign. It was a Sunday night at the time. Um, my family, my wife and I were, were, uh, dorm parents at Harvard and we were, so I was, my wife and kids were out, out, out in Harvard Yard somewhere and, and I was sitting in our bedroom and I knew the messages, um, were going to start flowing at 8 p.m. And, and the company we were working with called Signalvine had set up what is now quite sophisticated, but at the time was this very rudimentary portal where you could see messages, anonymized messages, as, as they would flow in. And I remember logging on this portal thinking, like, all right, we're going to send these texts. 
people are not going to respond at all. They're going to respond saying, who is this and why are you sending me messages? And I, I think of this as like the, the one like 15-second Mark Zuckerberg moment of my life where the messages went out and the portal just filled up. And I hit reply, I refreshed the screen and there was 20 more messages and there were 20 more messages. And, and de- some of them were definitely, who's this? Why are you texting to me? But a lot of them were, okay, this is great. Thanks for letting me know. Or messages like, you couldn't have texted me at a better time. I had questions about my financial aid. I didn't know who to turn to. Can I set up a time to talk? Because it probably would have come in under some anonymous number, right? Even if it did say, hi, name, it's your school or whatever. That's right. It was definitely a number they didn't know. And at the time, this was only a few years ago, um, students were certainly not used to getting texts from their school. That's changed just in the space of a few years. Uh, we were, we were, I think, thoughtful enough in, in the beginning um, to, to have the first message say, Hey, John, it's uh, Alex, an advisor from Dallas Independent High School. We want to help you with college. So we, we did our best to establish legitimacy. Um, but even, even given that, there was definitely some students for whom uh, this was unexpected and novel. Honestly, I think that's partly why it wound up working, right? It was unexpected and novel, and, and it got their attention. Yes, uh, the novelty factor, certainly, we can get into that a little bit later. Um, but absolutely, I mean, they, yeah, I think there's something definitely to that. Now, I'm going to keep digging on this. So you conducted the research in a number of different locations. Um, you were in Lawrence, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. Springfield, Boston. Um, you found some differences there. One, can you... Talk about what some of those differences were, uh, and then, yeah, let's start with that. Can you talk a little bit about some of the differences you found in, in the various locations? Sure. Yeah, and I should say the, the we here is important. So the, our point of connection to students was a great organ, is a great organization called You Aspire. They're a Boston-based uh, nonprofit focused on college affordability. And one of the really interesting things about the U Aspire model is that before students graduate high school, they provide in-school financial aid advising at just about every public high school in the district. And, and in this case, that was Boston, Lawrence, and Springfield. What's interesting about those communities, um, on the one hand, they're all cities in Massachusetts. On the other hand, Boston is a highly, highly educated community. So almost half adults in the Boston area have a, have a college degree. And Boston has, as a community, invested a lot in college-going supports for students in school and in the community during the academic year and even in the summer afterwards. And uh, the short story is that we didn't find any impact of our texting work in Boston. Uh, Lawrence and Springfield... 30, 45-hour drive from Boston, very different communities, much lower levels of educational attainment, higher rates of poverty, and many fewer college planning resources in the school or in the community than in Boston. And there we found that the same same text messages, I should also point out that our summer mail text, mes- text message campaign consisted of 10 text messages. So it wasn't you know a message every day or even a few a week, about one message a week. Uh, informing students about these these required financial and procedural tasks they had to complete. In Lawrence and Springfield, the the share of students um, who 
got the text that enrolled in college was about 10% higher than, than our, our control group that didn't get the text. And so our interpretation uh, of, of one likely explanation is that personalized information and the offer of assistance matter much more in environments where um, students don't have access to that information or that assistance in their schools or, or potentially in their homes or neighborhoods. And across these areas, you had students who there were a mix of high GPAs, low GPAs, GPAs somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, again, you were, you were finding differences in the effects of those messages within those, that heterogeneity of GPAs. Yeah, that's a great point. And this is actually something that's emerged across, I think, several studies, not just that the we've done, the, 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 the work we've been talking about um, has been with my colleague Lindsay Page at the University of Pittsburgh, um, but, but other researchers, I think, have been finding similar patterns where these, these campaigns that provide personalized information and assistance often seem to have the uh, biggest effects for students in the middle of the GPA distribution. Students we might think of as not at the top of their class, but, but academically ready for college. And it's an interesting group in the sense that um, in particularly in urban public high schools and lots of places across the country, uh, I, I genuinely believe counselors want to support students' college aspirations, but their time is being pulled in multiple directions. The average counselor only gets to spend about 20% of their time on college planning. And I think often what happens is that 20% goes to the top students uh, in, in, in each class, the students who um, are, are best positioned maybe to, to succeed academically in college. And then there's students who are really pretty low in the academic distribution who at that point in their lives maybe aren't ready to, to be as successful in college. And it's the students in the middle who, who've done pretty well academically, maybe not so well that they're getting limited uh, they're getting a portion of those counselors' limited time, but with so, a little bit of an extra nudge, the opportunity to, to connect with an advisor and get help with some of these tasks, um, it, that group seems to be particularly responsive to, to the offer of additional information and outreach. So the students at the margin piece makes a lot of sense. I want to go back and just make sure I'm clear on this. So also, if you're in an area that has, or if you're a student that has a lot of, say, potentially other people or things in your life that are nudging you already about college access, about you know, doing this, doing that, making sure you're on this. Um, does the text message intervention become just less powerful? Is it yeah, so I mean, this is not something that I think we have um, great experimental evidence. That's certainly one of our interpretations. And I think one indication is that across a variety of projects uh, and in different settings, we tend to see the largest impacts uh, of our texting campaigns, whether they're during the summer after high school or they are when students are in college, reminding them to, um, let's say, renew their financial aid or take advantage of academic campus-based uh, supports for, for academic advising and tutoring. We tend to find the largest effects either in communities or contexts where there is just less uh, available advising. So I have a paper with, with one of my doctoral students at UVA, Catherine Meyer, where we're looking at a texting campaign once students are in college. Um, and it's an interesting setting in that the, the students are attending different colleges. The colleges vary 
in how much they spend per student on instruction or on advising. And there we find that texts have the largest impacts in terms of credit completion and GPA in the colleges where um, there's the least infrastructure around advising. We also tend to find the largest impacts among the lowest income or the first generation college going students who are again, less likely to have that information at home. I think an important distinction, you know, one, one of the questions or, or the, the, if, we, if there's um, this areas of skepticism we encounter in this work is, is something to the effect of, well, if you have to send students a handful of text messages about these summer tasks, um, you know, and, and that's the only way they get them done, how are they possibly going to be successful in college? And, and the truth is, that these are students who've already shown they can do well academically. They got into lots of times got into four-year college in the first place. Um, the the kind of college and financial aid literacy financial literacy required to complete these tasks are often very different than the the academic uh, literacy academic knowledge students need to be successful. And as, as one of the counselors that you aspire told us, um, these in her interpretation, these texts, this outreach, these nudges are just filling in for what middle class parents do with their kids all the time, right? They're, we're, we're providing the same kind of nudges and reminders and encouragement that, that middle-class parents are doing for their college-bound kids. Yes, I, I think there's potentially something to that hypothesis uh, or interpretation. So broadening out a little bit from the summer mail piece, you've been touching on this a bit with other, other behaviors like submitting a FAFSA financial aid form. Just give an overall sense of the landscape around where nudging text behavioral interventions have been used, what kinds of behaviors, and sort of what, what do we know, what do we not know, what, what's, where are we going to dig in tomorrow to figure out stuff? Yeah, so this, this is a great question. I, so in some ways, it, I think it's helpful to rewind um, 10 years, a decade ago, because at the time, a very influential paper came out by Sue Donarski and Judy Scott Clayton talking about how complex the federal financial aid application known as the FAFSA um, was and how that complexity was likely deterring college-ready students um, from, from successfully matriculating. And before they wrote that paper, um, no one was really paying attention, or at least enough people weren't paying attention to how complexity in a financial aid application process um, could potentially uh, affect students from, from going to college. And in the 10 years that have Past, I, I really view that as an important seminal paper that, that has drawn our attention to look for these complexities. What we've realized is that there's complexities and behavioral bottlenecks all along the way um, to and through college, but, but, but even going back much further in education, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, take financial aid. Even after students have submitted the FAFSA, which, which um, which uh, Sue Donarski and, and Judy Scott Clayton pointed out as this complexity. Even after students get that in, fair number of students have to verify the income and, and asset information they provide on the FAFSA. And that verification process is something you complete separately with every college that you've been accepted to and that you're waiting on aid from. And every one of those colleges has a different verification process. Even after students do that, they get their financial aid award letters, and oftentimes students are, are considering taking out loans. So then they have to go through a very complex loan counseling process and evaluate different loan options. And, and I could go on and on um, that, uh, about the, the different 
challenging decisions that students face just on the road to college and then certainly when they're there, they face ongoing challenges around what courses to take, what majors to pursue, and I think a, a broader set of, of uh, social psychological challenges around transitioning into new cultural environments and navigating new relationships with faculty and peers. So that, on the one hand, is I think the challenge we're up against. Uh, the, the educational landscape requires students to navigate a series of complex decisions and complicated processes that are likely to be particularly difficult for economically disadvantaged students. And, and, and in turn, I think these, these behavioral bottlenecks likely only exacerbate existing inequalities in education. The encouraging side is that there's lots of great research um, demonstrating that 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 behaviorally informed, uh, pretty low cost interventions can help students navigate these challenges, and and have you know, substantially improved outcomes as a result. And I think a really important point to emphasize is there's been lots of really effective work that hasn't had anything to do with text messages. So again, one of the the seminal studies in this area uh, involves sending high achieving low income students packets, actual postal mail packets of, uh, you know, with semi-customized information about college, really high quality colleges that the students had a good chance of getting into based on their academic record. And that those packets led students to, to um, enroll at colleges with substantially higher graduation rates, substantially lower net costs. Uh, another example, one of my advisor, Bridget Terry Long, and uh, my, my colleague, Colleague and mentors uh, Eric Bettinger and Phil Oriopoulos um, did a study where they integrated FAFSA completion into the income tax preparation process at H&R Block. So, to me, this is a brilliant concept, right? Stu people are already coming in to prepare their taxes. They have all the information they need. So the tax preparer at the end of the tax preparation process said, hey, do you have a kid who might be going off to college in the fall? And for the, for the parents who answered yes, they spent eight or ten extra minutes taking the information that the families had already provided through the income tax preparation process, populating the FAFSA and sending it in. And, and that 10-minute intervention increased the share of, of, of students that completed two years of college, that's as far as they've been able to track them, by over 30%. Um, and so I think there's lots of really promising work that applies behavioral insights, in some cases applies interactive technologies, to help people navigate these these challenging decisions, but also um, that helps connect people to resources and opportunities they might not otherwise be aware of. That tax example is such a good one because it's combines it's just combines that powerful moment, tax day, um, with the exact right place, right? The tax preparer in the summer melt work, uh, or even another FAFSA work that you've done. Have, have you found anything that's any other moments or sort of places where there's such a there's such a perfect match like that? Um, I, I hope we get there. I, I really think that study is at the top of top of my list in terms of brilliance. Um, you know, I, I think going way earlier, and I'm not sure if this you want to broaden out this much, but but just to say, um, uh, you go way earlier in a kid's uh, education, and and what what we know from again a growing body of research is that even before kids get to school there are profound gaps in, in kids' early literacy by family income. And so a similar example of meeting people where they are is a program called Reach Out and Read, which worked with pediatricians to provide uh, books and, and really concrete pre-literacy um, strategies that parents, lower-income parents could use with their children. And this was evaluated in the context of a randomized trial, this Reach Out and Read program, as was the H&R Block study and the other ones I've mentioned 
Um, and they found that, that meeting families where they were at the pediatrician's office in that case, the same way that the, the researchers met families at the, uh, at the H&R Block office, led to substantially increased uh, parental reading at home and in turn improved uh, cognitive performance among kids. Um, and so I, I think this, this is, to me, a strategy that we should be thinking about much more creatively and actively in the, in the realm of kind of behavioral insights um, applied education. I think in, in a way we've gotten a bit complacent. We've seen positive effects of sending out text messages or semi-customized packets of information or emails, and, and that's led us to invest a lot of work in informational campaigns, behaviorally designed informational campaigns, which are one potentially powerful toolkit in the kind of behavioral arsenal. They are also potentially um, uh, a somewhat time-limited uh, tool in the sense that I, my belief, at least, is as people get more and more saturated with information, which we know is happening across lots of different um, uh, realms of society, and as um, channels that right now are effective like text get more saturated, um, um, I'm not convinced that these informational uh, strategies are going to have as much impact. And so figuring out where we can meet people in the course of their lives, whether the tax preparers or, um, or at the pediatrician's office or the grocery store. Like I, I've been trying to think a little bit myself lately, what's a great grocery store intervention that, that we could do every time someone goes through checkout? And especially now that people are using more of these automated kiosks, right? There's an opportunity to have something pop up around supplemental nutrition programs, for instance. Um, imagine when you're checking out for food, if, if a screen pops up and, and have to figure out the privacy issues, you could type in some information and, and become eligible um, for supplemental nutrition going forward. Uh, so I, I'd like to see more, more studies like H&R Block. I'd like to do more studies like the H&R Block study. On this the attractiveness of informational campaigns note. Uh, you wrote, not in your book, but on a separate blog post, quote, if I were a betting man, I'd give conventional text messaging a couple years before it is too saturated for campaigns to have the same large impacts on student and family decision-making in education, end quote. Uh, first, I'll just say people have been warning about, like, the death of email for yeah. years and it hasn't seems to be a continually effective commu uh, channel for communication but I mean, how would communicators prepare for the increasing saturation about frequency or cadence or shifting to alternative sources do, do we is your book going to matter in 10 years yeah it's a great well so that's a good question i i feel like i just had my a tim russert moment Right, where you, you read me back some quote from the New York Times in the 1990s where I said, uh, you know, position completely different, well, differently what I believe now. At least it's a consistent position. So, so this is something I'm, I'm becoming more and more interested in. In fact, I think one of your and my earliest exchanges on Twitter was on this question of, of for how long will text remain a viable channel? Uh, I haven't dug into this deeply, but, but you know, to the extent that I've looked at, at um, market, market research on, on texting activity, you know, let's say graphing something like uh, millions of messages sent per year or billions of messages sent per year in the States over the last 10 or 15 years, um, my read of that data is texting activity peaked about five years ago. And um, if we charted against that same time frame, 
uh, activity on third-party messaging apps, Snapchat, Kick, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, it's going up in the uh, in a rapidly increasing trajectory. Um, so, to me, uh, why I hope my book is relevant, um, or more broadly, why I hope um, we will continue to be able to apply behavioral insights to help connect people to resources and opportunities that they find helpful for themselves, is that ultimately it shouldn't be about any one channel, right? It should be about being as creative um, and entrepreneurial as we can in thinking about how people communicate, where people are, are choosing to spend their time, and, and meeting them where they are, either you know, a physical sense of meeting them at H&R Block or, or more of a figurative sense of through texting. You know, the death of email, I, one of the times, when I present about this sometimes, I, I put up a slide of um, Harry Crane from Mad Men staring at a television. And, and my, my guess is there's something you, you think a lot, think about and know, know a lot more about than I do. But my sense is that advertisers, it's going back 70 years, we're making the case, hey, we got to be using this newfangled television thing as a way of getting people to buy stuff. Print media is just not going to cut it anymore. And I think advertisers and marketers are way more savvy than, um, than researcher, academic researchers and, and policy interventionists in, in um, paying attention to the, to the channels that, that people are using. And, and I think more generally, and this is one of, the, one of the points I try and make in the book, is that I think we have a tremendous amount to learn from the private sector. And, and any of the strategies that the private sector, maybe not any, many of the strategies the private sector is using to sell goods and services, I think we should take a close look at it and co-opt what we can to, to help people make more informed decisions and, again, to connect them to opportunities they might not otherwise be aware of. Now, the, the title is... A hundred, the 160 character solution. Um, some people may get that reference instantly. Uh, from those who don't, what is the, what is yeah. 160 characters? So tactical mistake, tactical error, um, that I'll own, I, not by any means my, my publisher or editor, um, was, was choosing a title that, well, things that was outdated before the book even came out and and that i think speak makes the book um frames the book much more narrowly than i think the content is representative of so 160 characters uh used to be and in, in some cases still is the character limit on a text message so it used to be in our early messaging campaigns um that when we were writing messages we were very very careful of sticking to 160 characters because if you went over the message would get kind of truncated into these two parts and it would mess up the delivery of course most people now have uh phones where this character limit doesn't apply anymore and so um I, if I was if I was trying to be to put a positive spin on this, I would say that I was trying to be ironic or tongue in cheek about you know one channel um, channels kind of quickly becoming outdated and needing to stay at the frontiers. Nothing so clever as that. Um, but, but but then I also think that my my goal for the book was to talk much more broadly about how we could apply behavioral science insights to to improve education. Um, pre-K through college, with texting being only a small component of those efforts. And, and again, I think the title um, unintentionally implies a more narrow focus um, than, than intended. I, I was doing my best to, uh, to join the lofty company of great titles like Nudge and Blink and uh, uh, others. 
without without nearly as much success. Fair enough. Fair enough. The book is much broader than texting. That is absolutely absolutely the case. Uh, I, I want to. You made the point that texting has peaked, um, and I I want to agree and disagree, and again, sort of have the conversation around this notion of pulling apart texting. So texting in the literal SMS sense um, is peaked. Mm -hmm. But as you reference these other messaging services, which basically function like chatting, uh, are just blowing up. Right. And one, uh, as as more people text, the small cost of sending a text actually starts to add up on your monthly bill. So you would switch to one of these other messaging services where you can interact. Um, do you think that shift, uh, how, how would that shift affect sort of the potential kinds of interventions that texting may be useful for? And are there opportunities, you know, within a, a not a texting, but a messaging platform that you couldn't do currently or that you might be able to do better because of that just all-you-can-eat attitude about, oh, I'll just, I can interact with this. Maybe I'll ask questions. Yeah, yeah so, and I, I think an important point to clarify is that, and you're, you're spot on in drawing a distinction between texting as a means of chatting or interacting, which, which is broadly similar across any of the, across SMS or any of these messaging apps, right? Like the actual exchange looks pretty much identical. Um, and you know, a point to clarify on texting is that um, I, I see this this kind of this peak activity a couple of years ago as a leading indicator. I still think uh, for the types of, of outreach campaigns that I'm interested in, that uh, texting remains the most viable channel. And will so will for some time. So I'm more in response to your quote, trying to think about what what's going to be the effective way that we reach out to people 18 months or two years from now. Um, there are some pragmatic differences. So one of the advantages of SMS is that if we working in partnership with different agencies or organizations collect someone's cell phone number and can send to message them, we can launch a campaign with a million people. I have a project that just wrapped up with a common application. Uh, the common application, a lot of listeners are probably familiar with, but it's one central portal. It's a nonprofit through which students can apply to multiple colleges at once. The common application collects lots of contact information, including cell phone number and consent to message people. And um, about a million people use the common app every year. About 450,000 of them are lower income or first generation college going. So the Common App um, was very, very, I think, um, well, gracious about, but also um, pioneering and being willing to partner with us on a very, very large scale messaging campaign. We messaged 450,000 lower income students just a, just a month or so ago, month or so ago about completing their financial aid applications. Um, because the Common App collects cell phone numbers, consent to message, and, and, and that allows us to do it at scale. As of now, most of the, the most prominent third-party messaging apps, to the best of my kind of awareness, don't allow for um, external integration at scale, right? So I could friend a bunch of people or ask people, ask students for their usernames, um, 
or I don't even know if they're, I can't imagine students call them usernames, whatever the equivalent is of a username on, on Kick or Snapchat, and, and, and do some small-scale messaging that way. My guess is it, you know, one of the things we rely on with the, the text messaging is a, a kind of automaticity of, of filling out contact information that is traditional and conventional and, and, and people's being willingness, willingness to be contacted through those means. My guess is if all of a sudden the common application said name, email, address, cell phone number, Snapchat handle, um, there we're not benefiting from automaticity. If anything, I think it makes a student, you know, think, think, um, I, I don't know, uh, Snapchat is a particularly interesting example given the sort of the anonymity and disappearing. Yeah. I'm thinking um, more like WeChat or Kick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. So let's say Kick. I still think a student might seem, it might seem a bit odd or out of place for an educational organization, by no means just the common app, um, to ask for a Kick or, you know, WhatsApp username. And so my guess, if I had to forecast, I think there will be a lot of those companies will see increasing value in opening up their APIs to allow for that kind of integration. We're not there yet. Once that's possible, then I completely agree with your point. It's not about SMS. It's about um, about very kind of real-time, quick, consolidated uh, back-and-forth communication that's responsive to students' questions. The other thing I would just say briefly that actually very excites me, very much excites me about SMS is that Within a month or two, um, we are going to be able to start having large-scale campaigns that aren't just text in the literal sense of words and sentences, but messages that embed uh, images, infographics, video. And, in, and the more that, peop- that, that people become saturated with information, the more that, that SMS gets saturated as a channel, the more I think we have to differentiate. And imagery and video and well-designed infographics is going to be, I think, an important opportunity to differentiate, but also convey more content in the space of a text message than we can through 160 characters worth of words and, and phrases. I mean, beyond a simple reminder that these text messages are traditionally used for just this one-way push notification reminder, do X or something. Right. Um, I mean, there are more complex or interesting behaviors to try to, to get at, such as trying to communicate some kind of tip or piece of educational knowledge, you know, to help do this today, to help your child learn or to make sure you finish your homework or something like that. Uh, and I, I, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about, okay, that basic idea, I mean, you could have, you know, Vine six-second videos on how yep. to simplify your choice or it's the yep. same thing on Snapchat. It, it, that's what you're getting at, right, when you're talking about yeah. words and images and I, just... Yeah, I, and actually, I, your point is great because I, I hadn't even thought about this. You know, it's, it's, I guess we all get bound by, by the work we've done in the past and, and what we think of in the future. And so on. The, I definitely thought about... Um, Integration with Snapchat or Kick or some of these others, and in the in the SMS work I, I mentioned, I've been not only thinking about planning or and have some upcoming projects that will use video. I'll, I'll give a perfect example of something that we might want to try and, and convey to a student that's very different than don't forget to um, sign up for orientation, right? Really, kind of very concrete reminders. Uh, there's been I, I write about this a bit in the book. What I think is really tremendous work coming out of Stanford, um, Greg Walton and colleagues focused on stu- uh, underrepresented students' belonging anxiety as they transition into college. The idea that 
a student is from an underrepresented background, they go to a college where uh, the dominant cultural group is different than their own, and um, from the very beginning, students question whether they belong at that institution, whether there are other students like them, so to speak, whether the institution wants students like them, again, so to speak, from the student's perspective, and that that doubt, that belonging anxiety, can lead students to, to interpret challenges they encounter, not as a normal part of the transition process, but instead as diagnostic or, or confirming, confirmatory that they don't belong. And Greg and his colleagues have done some really tremendous work on, on addressing that belonging anxiety and reframing it as a normal part of the transition that, that um, is often transient and something that, that gets better over time, and, and they've found some really amazing impacts. Um, mapping that onto text messaging, we've tried, actually, in the context of a couple different projects to figure out, well, how could we address belonging anxiety in the space of a few words or phrases? And we didn't get anywhere. I mean, we didn't, we didn't settle on any set of messages that we thought effectively conveyed some of the, these great insights that Greg and his colleagues have developed. Now, if we could put together a short video, right, of a student in college um, talking about their experience and how at first it was challenging, over time it got better, this is a lot of the, drawing a lot of the strategies Greg and his colleagues have done, that's a video we can embed in a text message. And we can write a very quick text message that says, you know, how, how are the first couple of weeks of, of college going? If it's feeling a bit challenging, that's normal. A lot of students experience that. Watch John talking about his experience. To me, that's potentially really powerful. It taps into a different set of behaviors. And that's, of course, by no means bound to SMS. I'd love to do um, that as a, as a Snapchat story that we could push out to, to young people. Without deep knowledge on this, personally, not surprised you were struggling with trying to capture that in a few words, just simply words or phrases. Um, I'm sort of you know, imagining the notion of, you know, the the Snapchat video about, you know, my experience at college that is about to disappear, of course. So don't you want to, you know, sort of it combines that yeah, exactly. with, with the powerful visual and audio of a real human talking right. about what they got. Um, on another channel uh, or another uh, Twitter um, so Twitter is I, I find an interesting one just because brands sometimes will use it as a customer service channel mm-hmm. um, customer service in an educational context is it I mean even with the say the, the direct messaging private piece now where you can direct message people even yeah. if you're not following them. Um, and, and have you played anything around there? Or is that just sort of outside the notion of educational customer service? At the- no, I don't think it's outside the, the notion. I mean, certainly I've thought a lot about Twitter. Um, uh, back in 2012, when we did our first texting project, we were debating, do we want this to be a texting project or a Facebook project? This was before the alleged decline in, in use of Facebook among adolescents. Um, and, and ultimately, um, you know, text seemed to make the most sense to me for a couple of reasons. One, the point I made earlier, it's a lot easier to collect cell phone numbers and, and automate messaging than it is to do in a personalized way than, than it is through Facebook. But one of the beauties of text messaging, and this is a point that I think, again, you and I had some back and forth around over Twitter to, um, is that at least for a moment in time, 
our, we get a message, our phones chirp, they vibrate, they literally demand our attention. And that content for that moment stands out on its own. Twitter, Facebook, other social media platforms, you know, we, we've actually explored, done some experiments with Facebook ads, haven't done anything with Twitter. Um, the challenge is that whatever whatever content you're you're creating, an ad, a promoted a promoted post in a news feed, um, it's competing with a lot of other content around it, and a lot of other content that is potentially much more salient and interesting to the student. And so, um, I was working with with one large organization. Um, and some colleagues trying trying to use Facebook ads to, to encourage students to complete a, a um, uh, an important task in the college um, application process, and you know half jokingly, but but in really more seriously than not, um, I was trying to make the case that the picture that went with our ad should just be a cute cuddly kitten, like not that it had anything to do with the content, but. Um, a cute cuddly kitten is going to get a whole lot more attention and interest than than what we were posting. Um, so, so that that's been more why I've tried to to pursue direct to student um, or direct to individual outreach efforts. I, I will say that I really respect the efforts of organizations, agencies like Federal Student Aid, the, the body within the Department of Education that, that oversees financial aid. I think they've been um, had some really great content on Twitter, um, providing students with information about financial aid, hosting live chats on Twitter. So I, I think that... Uh, you know, they certainly could have just kept sending emails, and I and I think some of their content is really well developed. Um, the challenge, unfortunately, is the Department of Education doesn't have as many followers as uh, LeBron James, right? Or 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 pick your MTV, um, and so there's a reach question. But but I certainly think there are some instances of organizations trying to both provide student-centered content and make one-on-one. Help available through through platforms like Twitter. Since the book is titled you know, "160 Character Solution," but obviously it sort of talks about a variety of, of behavioral strategies uh, to improving uh, educational outcomes. When you share this work with administrators, school teachers, um, where do they? How do they? Uh, how do they react to it? Are there sort of do they become attracted to the the text messaging informational piece, or or how do you sort of get them to think beyond texting? That's a very good question. Um, oftentimes, I should say my my sense is that oftentimes school personnel, school administrators, of the work that I do, um, are most interested in the text messaging type strategies because it, they tick off several, um, several key considerations, especially for, for school leaders who are you know, figuring out how to stretch, thin, stretch resources as, as, as far as they can. And so you know, the messages are low cost, they're scalable. We've shown in various settings they can be high impact. Um, and, and they're not, the, the texting campaigns are not, don't require like great technical sophistication, and so they're they're strategies that that schools can implement and sustain outside of researcher involvement. Um, 
And so I think the challenge is more about how to, and this really is outside of the book, um, it's more how to get um, school leaders to first diagnose the different behavioral obstacles, behavioral bottlenecks that students or families might encounter in the course of their um, uh, experience within the school, and then to think broadly about the the set of strategies that that they could draw on behaviorally informed strategies to um, to help students through the, through those bottlenecks, and certainly there have been, um, I think, a, you know, again, a really exciting set of efforts within education that apply a broader set of, of behavioral insights. So I think various districts and states, for instance, have made um, made it a default that every student takes the takes a college entrance exam, the SAT or the ACT. Um, so it's not just the people who voluntarily sign up for it who take it. And by virtue of taking one of these exams as the default, students are more likely to be exposed to post-secondary options. That That's one example. Um, I gave the, the reach out and, and read exam example earlier. Uh, and certainly I think that there's been tremendous interest in, in schools um, in applying some of the, the really great social psychological research on promoting growth mindset or, or you know, engaging students in values affirmation exercises. Um, so I think schools are interested in doing more, but, but or and I should say, there's always going to be, there's always going to be interest um, among school personnel in low-cost, high-impact strategies. And so when I present the work, I, I guess to the extent that I'm, I'm um, trying to uh, encourage them to think about this as broadly as possible, what I'm also trying to do is to help uh, and support school personnel to understand how important the details are, that it's not about the texts uh, themselves. It's about the way we're leveraging text as a channel um, to deliver behaviorally informed content that um, that provides students with either helps them follow through on their own intentions or just it prompts them to make more active choices. And I think I do think schools are responsive to that. I think they get that if they just blast people with a bunch of text messages that don't have a lot of thought or design behind them, they're, they're probably not going to be so effective. Have you presented this or had interactions with parental groups? Um, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure that I've presented to like a parent teacher association. There's certainly sometimes uh, groups that I present to that either have a lot of parents in the audience or I think have families as one of their key constituents. So I think an organization like the United Way Worldwide, where I've had the, the opportunity to present some of my work. Um, and, you know, I think that in general, um, uh, even even organizations that are really thinking about about families and community supports tend to be pretty supportive of these strategies. I think in large part because it's fairly clear when we when I present about it or when even when I show examples of the texts that we're not trying to tell students or families what's best for them. We're not trying to be heavy handed um, or or to presume that we know what's best. Instead, we're trying to connect people to simplify information. We're trying to remind people about tasks they have to complete uh, to follow through on whatever intention they have. And, and again, we're trying to break down barriers to one-on-one -on -one assistance. And I think there's a kind of democratization um, about the work that, uh, that appeals to folks. I, I should say, 
I think some of the most exciting work uh, in education is is focused on leveraging behavioral insights to improve parent engagement. So there's been work, you know, providing parents via text message with um, pre-literacy strategies they can practice with their children. Susanna Loeb and Ben York at Stanford have done this, and they're finding really big impacts. Peter Bergman's done great work using lots of channels to provide parents with um, information about which assignments their kids have and haven't completed. And again, finding finding big impacts, not only on assignment completion, but GPA further down the road. And um, so I think there's, there's lots of uh, opportunities to leverage these kinds of strategies to provide parents with information and opportunities for engagement in their kids' education that they want to have but, but might face uh, barriers to absent these efforts. Those are primarily younger students, right? I mean, the pre-literacy, but have you seen anything with, per, with parents with text messaging or just general kinds of informational campaigns for teenagers or even college-age students? With that reach out to their parents? Yeah. Well, so I think so. Um, there is definitely work going on. Um, Todd Rogers at the Kennedy School is doing some work around this. Uh, and I think one of his strategies that I, I'm really interested in is, is leveraging um, having, having students, college students, identify important social supports that they want to know about how they're doing and then reaching out to those social supports. So a student might say, yeah, I want my mom to know how I'm doing in college. And then Todd and his colleagues, my senses, are, are kind of sending the parent, the cousin, the uncle, the coach um, messages saying, hey, John wanted you to know um, that that he's in college and, and want us to share how he's doing. We encourage you to reach out. I, I, that may, I may be getting the details of the campaign wrong, but I think that's the broad thrust. I think that's very interesting. Uh, one of my PhD students, um, Denise Deutschlander, is doing a project where she's working with a, a college access organization. Um, and as students transition to college, not text the students, but text the parents and give them um, uh, uh, guidance on, on kind of help, positive help-seeking strategies they can encourage their kids to use. So encouraging parents to, to suggest that their children go to office hours or use tutors, um, recognizing that parents on their own might not know how to direct or provide guidance to their kids and that equipping parents with those information and strategies might in turn yield real benefits for, for children. So I think there is growing um, there is a growing amount of work and interest in, in parent engagement, even with adolescents. I don't think we've got um, as robust a body of evidence behind it yet. And obviously it's much more complicated with adolescent parent relationships right, anyway. Right. But, uh, but the notion of somebody somebody in your social network, uh, a peer, a parent, an uncle, somebody, a coach, whatever it is, who you trust and would be willing to, uh, to help you continue along uh, and succeed academically. Um, last question here for you. Anything in... Something is, is there something that you believed or thought about either text messaging or education before you started a lot of this research years ago that you now question or no longer believe after years of research? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I'm not sure there's anything that I... Um, no longer believe. I I believe more strongly, and, and this is true every day. Um, 
I believe more strongly that there are many, many very bright, hardworking, talented kids uh, in all kinds of communities who, who, um, whose progress and attainment, um, educational attainment, are, are tripped up by these needlessly complex um, processes uh, and, um, and, and decisions. And... Um, you know, this this goes back to when I was a high school teacher, and you know, I had my own students who who just were sharp as a tack, and 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 really had such tremendous aspirations. But then they faltered on the road to college or through college when they encountered these these difficult challenges. And so I think I just believe even more strongly with every day how important it is either that we simplify that process on the front end, but to the extent that it's challenging to do so, that. We continue to figure out creative strategies and opportunities to um, strategically deliver information to make make assistance available um, at these critical junctures, so so that students who've worked hard throughout, um, you know, have have the have the same opportunities as more affluent kids to continue and and uh, pursue their aspirations. Perfectly fair answer. Uh, my guest today has been Ben Castleman. He is the author of The 160-Character Solution, How Text Messaging and Other Behavioral Strategies Can Improve Education. Ben, thanks for being part of the New Books and Media and Communications podcast. Thanks so much, John. I really enjoyed the conversation. 